We're in Matthew chapter 10 and been going through Matthew. And in chapter 10, what Matthew is doing is he's giving all of his disciples a manual for mission. It's a, it's a curriculum where he's trying to prepare them for the mission that he's about to send them on. And he tells them, it's going to be difficult. You're going into difficult and dark places and you need to get ready. And it might be... Um, legendary, but legend has it that when Ernest Shackleton was trying to get the team together to uh, explore and then hike across uh, the South Pole, he put out an advertisement in the newspaper that went like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. I mean, it doesn't sound very enticing or motivating, or does it? But the rumor was that thousands of people responded. And it reminds me of uh, Gimli's line in the Lord of the Rings, the third one, The Return of the King, when they're trying to decide whether they'll do the diversion and go on and attack Sauron to make a diversion so Frodo can go back. And uh, he says, certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? What else do we need? What are we waiting for? You know, there's a certain personality type who, you know, there's a personality type who will be flying in a plane and they'll think, you know, it would be awesome if we could figure out how to jump out of this plane and not die. That would be amazing. Or there's a certain personality type that like looks at a, you know, 500 foot straight rock wall. Thinks what would be amazing is if we could climb that without any ropes and not die. And then there's other personality types who are in a plane and they don't think about jumping out at all. I think I'm quite happy being in a perfectly good plane. No need to jump out. And here in Jesus' mission sermon, he's actually going to, to challenge us and say, you're about to go into a really difficult situation. And kind of one of the questions is, all right, is this just for a certain, you know, kind of radical disciple? Is this for a certain personality type who likes danger and is an adrenaline junkie? Or is this for everyone? Is this for all of his disciples? Now let's look and listen because the first part he set it up and he said, all right, I'm about to send you out. Like we look out in the world and we see the world is broken. People are helpless. They're hurting and I have compassion. And so what I'm going to do, I'm about to send you out because they are like sheep without a shepherd. So I'm going to send you out, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you power. You will have my power, and you will be able to heal diseases. You will be able to cast out demons. You will be able to raise the dead, and you will proclaim my word. And so they're thinking, all right, good, let's go. Here we go. And then there's a turn. There's a turn here. So listen, we'll start in verse 16. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them. Because they will hand you over to the local courts and they will flog you in their synagogues and you will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak for you'll be given what to say at that hour because it isn't you who's speaking but the spirit of your father who's speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly, truly, I say to you, you will have not gone throughout the, all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So here he's trying to get them ready. And you think, all right, how is that speech motivational? 
How is that supposed to encourage them to go on their mission? You think you might say, all right, you can do it. You're invincible. Nobody's going to stop you. But that's not what he says. Jesus is actually preparing them for some of the deepest wounds that they will experience. And so why is he stressing the bad news so much? In this section, so little promise of success, so little promise of lives changed and cities transformed, but it's about suffering and betrayal and death. So we're going to look at a couple of things, just two of the things that he promises them. And as we go through this whole section, what we have to balance back and forth is he tells them there's a living dynamic between the trouble they're going to face and the trust they need. Here's the trouble. Here's the trust. And it goes back and forth throughout all of the rest of the chapter. But the beginning, verse 16, this is kind of a banner that's supposed to shape how they're supposed to view themselves. And he gives four images of animals, four animal pictures. And he says, look, I'm sending you out like, then what would you expect? I'm sending you out like mighty lions who are going to conquer. I'm sending you out like tigers. I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out like sheep. I think they're sending us out like sheep. Hold on. No, we're not the sheep. You got it backwards. You looked out on the world and they were the lost sheep, but we're not the sheep. What is Jesus, what is he doing? Why these images? Look, sending you out like sheep among the wolves, you need to be shrewd like serpents and innocent like doves. Why does he give them that image? So here's how you're, the image, kind of on your mascot is to be a sheep. You know, we kind of understand like the Roman legions, each one on their standard, they would have a different animal. And you know what animal never made it onto any of their standards? Sheep. You had things like lions, you had wolves, you had hawks. You know, one of the most famous was the scorpions, the legion that would go in the desert. They were scorpions. And you can kind of get this like in, you know, college athletics. You look at the mascots. I mean, what are the mascots? I mean, you have things like gators and bulldogs and tigers and wolverines. And you actually, it's only kind of the kind of strange schools that have odd mascots. Like one of my favorite, pull up the first picture, Liz. This is Artie the Fighting Artichoke. (laughs) Scottsdale Community College mascot, SCC. Go Artie. Not fighting artichokes, not necessarily terrorizing anyone. Here's the pull up the next one. My my favorite is uh, University of California at Santa Cruz. (laughs) This is Sammy the Banana Slug. And you see, he's got his glasses and he's holding his book of Plato. So this gives you an image here at the University of California at Santa Cruz. What we bet you know, that Sammy is not going to strike fear into the Spartans or the Bruins. He's not terrorizing anyone. So why is this image? And here Jesus is giving us an image. He's saying, the image I have for you, you're sheep. But now the type of sheep you're going to have to be, you have to know you're actually going amongst the wolves. So they're going amongst the wolves. Remember the wolves? We've seen them before in the Sermon on the Mount. The wolves are the false prophets. All throughout the New Testament, you're going amongst the wolves. They're the false prophets and sheep clothing, the false teachers. You know, one of the amazing things, you just read through the New Testament. For the men's Bible study, we've been going through uh, James through Jude and trying to look at it as a chunk. And one of the things that just strikes me is how significant and serious they all take the false teachers. You know, Second Peter, Jude, that's what it's all about, how to deal with the, the wolves, the false teachers, the false prophets. You're going among the wolves, and then you're going to have to be as wise as a serpent, but innocent as doves. So I'm sending you out like sheep, but you're not just going to be helpless sheep. 
You have to be wise. You have to be smart. Don't be naive. You have to be like a serpent. This is one of the great challenges. How can you be um, savvy but not sinister? Wise like the serpent but not but innocent as a dove. And, you know, you can look at snakes. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed is walking around our neighborhood because often, uh, every so often, we'll see snakes. And there's a big difference between the way snakes respond to people and the way puppy dogs respond to people. You know, you see a puppy dog, and what do they do? They don't need to know you. They just come bounding up and say, hello, you're a being. You want to be my friend? Will you pet me? Will you feed me? I'll take whatever you give. Here, let's play. We're now best friends. But snakes don't do that. They'll slither away. They'll watch you. They're on the alert. It says you're going to have to be wise, but then you also have to be innocent. But actually the mascot, the image that he gives us is, is of sheep who are both wise, but then also innocent as doves. And then now that sets up the frame for the whole rest of the chapter. And then now I want us to look, look at the two things. He actually tells them there's trouble coming. And the first notice, the trouble that's coming is going to be public. It's going to be painful and it's going to be political. Notice, look, I'm sending you out. So this isn't a mistake. It's not something that's happened to you and I didn't recognize. I'm actually sending you out this way. And beware of them because they're going to hand you over. It's going to be public. They're going to hand you over to the local courts. So there will be a group. There will be a mob. You'll be handed over. And then they will flog you. It's going to be painful in the synagogues. And then you'll even be brought before the governors and the kings because of me. To bear witness, that's the word, to be a martyr. Martyr, they bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. So who's going to do it? It's the false prophets that we've, we've seen, the wolves. They're going to hand them over, going to rouse up the mob, going to stir public sentiment against them. And they're going to take them to the local courts, going to flog them, and then going to take them before kings, before the political rulers. And you see this in the life of both Jesus. You see it in the disciples. You know, one of the things we'll have to talk about in a couple of weeks as we look through the section is how all the timing fits together. Because initially, uh, Jesus is giving them a very um, specific mission just to certain cities in Israel, and then now it's starting to expand. And actually what we see here in this chapter is every single thing he says is going to happen to them actually happens to them in the book of Acts. They all experience these things. All of these things, these things actually happen to Jesus in his trial of being brought before publicly, the mob going against them, then being handed over to the political Authority. So here's the trouble that's coming. The trouble. It's going to be public. It's going to be painful. It's going to be political. Here's the trouble. But then you notice he always balances it with a promise. But here's the trust you need. Don't worry. But when you're handed over, don't worry. One of the interesting you'll see is over and over he says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't worry about what? Don't worry about what you're supposed to say or how you're supposed to speak. Don't worry about defending yourself. You don't have to think about that in advance. Don't worry about what you're supposed to say, for you will be given what to say at that time. It'll be given to you. But notice, who will do the speaking? It's not you, but it's the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So don't worry about what you're supposed to say. The Holy Spirit will bear witness to, uh, through you. Now, it's interesting, you know, this is kind of great reversal. Like, you can actually see this in the life of Paul. You know, one of the amazing things is that, uh, that the persecution, or kind of the, the oppression of Paul kind of rose up. He gets thrown in prison. He advances in the second Timothy. He says, I'm in Rome. Then I'm standing before the king, standing before Caesar. 
and no one stood with me except everyone abandoned me except the Lord. He stood with me. He spoke through me. And in Paul's life, this remarkable thing where uh, they thought they were persecuting him and silencing him, and it only ended up turning him into the opportunity to speak before Caesar himself, before the king. What's amazing is that what Jesus is telling is like the persecution is coming. It's going to be hard. But the amazing thing about it is everything it does, there's going to be this reversal where they're trying to squash you, but they'll only make your voice louder. You don't have to worry about what you're to say because I'm the one who's going to speak through you. But for us, it's really worth thinking about. First, it's worth always holding on to that great trust. What we trust in is the great reversals, these reversals that happen. But it's also worth thinking about, all right, are we ready for this type of difficulty, this type of public, painful, political persecution. You know, in some ways, we've lived under the kind of the shadow of, in essence, Christendom's shadow for, you know, at least in the West, for, you know, over a thousand years. And there's a lot of things we haven't really experienced. But this is not uncommon for many believers throughout church history. And there's probably a lot of things we can learn for other believers in other places about how you hold up and stay faithful and stay strong when you're under this type of weight and this type of pressure. And we can learn from like the Russian dissidents who stood strong uh, in the last century. Think of people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn and and Czeslav Milos who wrote about their being able to stand up under the weight. Or look at like the Coptic Christians who have been able to stand strong under heavy Muslim persecution for a thousand years. They've been able to stand strong. So it's a question, are we ready for this kind of thing? Are we ready? But notice the key phrase and all throughout this, because of me. It's because of me. That's why it's coming. It's because of me. And it's worth thinking about, all right, what could Jesus stand and say publicly now that would get the tide of public opinion to kind of come down on him? What is it because of me? But Jesus tells me, right, the first cycle of persecution that's coming, it's going to be public. It's going to be painful. It's going to be political. But then notice he says, here's a second wave that's coming. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Whether they, whenever they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly, truly, I say to you, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And here, I think he's going even deeper, even darker. The, you know, the deepest wounds you can experience. Notice the words. What's going to happen? They're going to be betrayed. They're going to be hated. And they'll even be put to death. So betrayal, hatred, death. And you think, you know, the deepest wounds you can experience. You know, it's one thing to be publicly maligned. It's another thing to be attacked or betrayed by those you love. Love betrayed. And as we go through this whole section, it's really one of the challenging things is notice how much Jesus talks about the family dynamics. Do you see it? Brother against brother, father against child, children rise up. And then in verse 32 through 37, he talks about how he didn't come to bring, it's a strange thing to say. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide these families. So we have to really wrestle with, all right, what does he mean? Why is this the context You know, he's already told them, all right, you have power over sickness. You have power over the devil. You have power over death. You have power over uncleanness, but you don't have the power to hold your family together. You don't have the power to not be persecuted. It's like, why? Why is this? Why does so much of the persecution actually come from 
family members. And it's kind of difficult for us to understand because of the way our just world is constructed. You know, we're tight nuclear family. So kind of at worst, you know, we can, if you have family tension, you can kind of avoid, you know, people at your family members at family reunions. You can kind of steer away from certain contentious subjects and just kind of agree to just kind of walk on, you know, eggshells and not try and set anything off. But in this world, you know, it's totally different. I mean, your entire world was wrapped up into your familial structure. You know, so for example, families were the main kind of social uh, welfare network. So you think about, all right, everything that we actually rely on either the government or a corporation to do for us, they relied on family. You know, primarily now, we primarily rely on family just to kind of meet our emotional needs. But in this world, your family literally was everything. So if there was a woman who, her, if her husband died and she had no son, she would be utterly dependent. There was no, there was no institution she could go to receive uh, support or help. One of her brother-in-laws had to take her in or she would be completely destitute. The family was kind of the main mechanism for all of your economic prosperity, your business, all of your personal contacts. You know, your work was provided by the family. Your future was secured by the inheritance that your family could provide. And often families were the ones that actually carried out, you know, justice. You know, think about things like slavery. One of the great tragedies of slavery is that the primary perpetuators, the primary people even right now who sell people into slavery is family members. It's primarily from the family. And it was interesting. The Bible doesn't shy away from that darkness. Have you ever thought about Genesis? How Genesis, you know, the entire cycle, you look and you read that, all right, brother will betray brother to death. I mean, how could that happen? But that's actually one of the key themes of the entire book of Genesis. Every cycle is a different story about brother betraying brother to death, Cain and Abel, trying to betray them to death with Jacob and Esau, and then with Joseph. So you can see the Bible doesn't shy away from this difficulty. But here, to be estranged from your family could be the worst thing that would happen to you. You'd lose your identity, you'd lose your name, you'd lose your contacts, you'd lose your security, your safety net. You would lose your kind of the safety net you'd have in case poverty. You know, everybody was just one bad harvest away from being destitute, from being impoverished. And the family was all you had. So he's warning them, this is what's going to happen. And you look in different countries where somebody in like in a Muslim country, when they convert to Christianity, they actually experience this, where they lose all of their social and relational networks. So notice what Jesus is saying. I mean, you just kind of sit with those words. He says, all right, the brother, you'll be betrayed, and then you'll be hated by everyone. You think, all right, how is that meant to motivate us? How is that meant to be encouraging? You know, I heard a sad thing. A friend of mine who teaches philosophy, and he's been teaching for over 20 years, and he was talking about just some of the difference that he's noticed in the kids coming in now as opposed to when he started. And one of the saddest things he says is he noticed that Kids now have so many fewer friends, real friends. So because they're so worried that they'll say the wrong thing and then it'll get published far and wide and they'll be, you know, mocked, ridiculed, slandered. So they're, they're always on their guard, worried about being betrayed. It's just a terrible way to live. So what's he saying? Now notice one of the important things about this is everyone, this will happen to you, but it's because of my name, so as we're thinking, this is not just happening because, you know, because you're a difficult personality. What is it about the name? 
you know, Peter highlights in Acts. He says that there's this name, there's no other name among heaven and earth that you can be saved. So it's the exclusivity of the name. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so there's an element of it being about the name. But as we transition, we stop and kind of, this is kind of setting the stage for the next movement. A couple things I want you to just think about. Now notice what he says. He tells them, all right, trust, you hold on, you can endure. It's going to be difficult, but it will come to an end and the one who endures will be saved. He tells them, you keep going. Once you experience the difficulty, you keep going. And the two things that he wants to tell them to trust is trust that the great reversal is coming. There's going to be a reversal. The tide, the table, they will turn. And then until Until then, you keep going. So I wonder which of those two words, maybe do you need that encouragement this morning? Maybe you're entering into a difficult situation. Maybe not on this scale, but it's difficult in in your world. You think, all right, is there a certain tide that needs to be turned, a table that needs to be turned? You know, the promise of the reversal is that mourning lasts for the night, but then joy comes in the morning. So weeping, then joy, persecution, then proclamation, suffering, then celebration. They get turned. And then he tells them, keep going, keep going. So how prepared are you for this type of difficulty? Let's take a moment as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and pray. We can pray for those who are experiencing these type things. And then the the supper, one of the reasons we we take each week, because it's a, a reminder. It's, in essence, food for the journey, food to keep going. You can endure. You can keep going. You started with the quote from Gimli in The Lord of the Rings. And, you know, in The Lord of the Rings, there's also this little bread that the elves give to Frodo and Sam. It's called the Limbus bread. And it's this little bitty wafer. And what that's symbolic of, Tolkien's representing, that's actually the the bread of communion. It's this little bitty wafer that you're meant to take that's to give you energy and to help you keep going, give you the nourishment to be able to continue to endure. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is symbolic. It represents my body broken for you. I will be broken so you can be put back together again and made whole. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's been shed for you and the forgiveness of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the realistic way it paints for us the realities of life in a challenging world. And so we ask that you help us, help prepare us to be strong when we enter into difficulties. We thank you for the promise that all things will be turned and that all things eventually will work for the good for those who are called according to your purposes and they trust you and that when the world means things for evil, you can mean them and turn them for good. And so we lift up those people around the world. There are many Christians we know that this is a living reality for them. It's not some esoteric thing, but they are living uh, the reality of of, of living in fear of being betrayed before the governing authorities and being betrayed and flogged. And so we pray that you would strengthen them. We pray that you would encourage them. We pray, that we pray for our land and our community that uh, our world and country would not become uh, to this point, that you would preserve us from being this way. But we also pray and ask that whatever we face, whatever we're called to endure or walk through, we pray that you and ask that you would prepare us, that you would keep us strong, and uh, we thank you for the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.